up with you. But I want to invite you right now to open up your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 57, everybody. And uh, let's get into the Word of God here together. Psalm chapter 57 is going to be our text uh, this morning. And this is inspired by what we've been reading on Scripture of the day as we're reading through 1 Samuel. Anybody been reading through 1 Samuel? Anybody still out there reading their Bible? It's a smattering of applause for 1 Samuel. We're going to read Psalm 57. This is going to be our text, all 11 verses. And once you find it in your Scripture, I'm going to ask if you would stand up for the reading of God's Word, out of respect for God's Word. And I'm not going to let the heat get to me, so you don't let it get to you. Let's do this. Let's do some study of the Word of God right now. Hey, if you're at home, we've got people watching this on live stream, stand up right now. Come on, these guys are out here sweating. Stand up if you're at home. Uh, we're going we're to get into this Word of God. This is going to really, I think, be a game-changer chapter for some of us as we're going through this trial right now. So I really need us, to, I need God to speak to us through His Scripture, and we need to hear what He has to say. So please follow along as I read Psalm 57. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That's the reading of God's word. Please go ahead and have your seat. And, and I want you to just zero in on some inspired words here. It doesn't get a verse number, but look at the, uh, look at the description of the psalm. Now you need to see that it says there, in fact, circle this. If, you're, if you got our handout and you're taking notes, or if you like to write in your Bible, circle this in the cave. And on our handout, see, it didn't even make the handout, the description there. You need to write that next to Psalm 57 if you're taking notes. In the cave. That's where he wrote this. He wrote it from a cave. Now, some of you are going to be thinking by the end of this service, a cave would be pretty nice right about now, you know. But there was nothing nice about this cave. Notice the description. When he fled from Saul, the guy is running for his life. The guy is fleeing from an army of hand-picked soldiers coming to kill him. One of the things you need to understand, when you read a psalm, and it's written by David. David was a guy who fought enemies hand-to-hand, kill or be killed, close personal 
contact. He says some intense things about enemies in the Psalms. Yeah, but he's been in situations that maybe most of us uh, have not really been in where you're hand-to-hand and it's I'm going to die or you're going to die. One of us is going to kill the other one. That's the kind of life that David had as a warrior, as a soldier. And he's now out, outmatched, outnumbered, and it's the king himself who is coming to get him. Go to 1 Samuel with me, everybody. We're in Psalms, so it's just a few pages over to the left. 1 Samuel chapter twenty. Two. Let's go to 1 Samuel 22 here. And hopefully you read this this week, you're familiar with it. But when, when Saul starts throwing spears at David, then he starts throwing spears at his son Jonathan. David has to flee for his life. Uh, Jonathan helps him escape. His wife helps him escape. He runs to Samuel. He's running to a priest. He's running to the Philistines. He's running. He's fleeing. He's just trying to find a safe place. And here in 1 Samuel 22, he comes to the cave of Adullam. So we're not exactly sure what cave he's writing it from because the guy's spending time in so many caves hiding for his life. Look at this description. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So here comes his family. Now his brothers aren't making fun of him watching the sheep anymore. They're getting on his side. And then verse 2, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and they were with him, there were with him there about 400 men. Now, when you hear about David and his 400 men, later they're going to be referred to as the mighty men of David. It might give you the impression, like Robin Hood and his merry men. Has anybody ever heard about those guys before? Like, they're all happy, they're all singing, and all the... Anybody watch the old Errol Flynn Robin Hood, the old Disney animated Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest? Anybody know what I'm talking about, right? It might sound, oh, David and the guys hanging out. No, this is everybody who's broke. This is everybody who's bitter. I mean, I don't know if this helped, David. Do you want the 400 malcontents coming over to your house and hanging out later on? I mean, that's what's going on here. I don't know if this was a, a, merry, a merry party here that they were having in the cave of Adullam. You're hiding for your life, and, and who rallies to your cause? Well, praise God, your family shows up, but then the people, the people who show up are the people who already have a reason to be mad at King Saul, maybe? So he's got some guys, but it's a... It's a mismatched, ragtag team of, of guys. Go over to chapter 24. He's in another cave here in 1 Samuel 24. This is in the cave here in En Gedi, in the wilderness of En Gedi. En Gedi is a beautiful place. It's an oasis in the desert. Uh, the, the worst wilderness I've ever seen is not some desert here in California. It's the wilderness of Judah outside of Jerusalem. I mean, it's a place where they literally call the body of water the Dead Sea. If you ever get to go to Israel, and we're going to try to go next summer, Lord willing, and we'll go out to En Gedi, and you're just driving for miles and miles, and it is the bleakest landscape you've ever seen in your life. And then you find this oasis, and it's like this waterfall in the desert. 
and you hike up. It's an awesome hike because you walk through the water. You walk through these caves, and you walk through these palm trees, and you're walking up this stream, and there's all these caves in the rocks in the canyon that you're walking through, and then you get to the waterfall at the end, and it's cool and refreshing. And once you go to En all the Psalms, they come to life right in front of your eyes. You're like, oh, he's not being poetic when he says that God's a rock. He's just talking about hiding right here. Oh, he's not being poetic when he's talking about shelter and refuge. He's out here in this brutal, desolate wilderness, and he's found a place to hide under. He's found a shelter so he's not burning in the heat. Like, you realize a lot of the imagery he's getting from where he is when he's writing his psalms. Look what it says here, 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. Notice the contrast. 400 broken, bitter men versus 3,000 chosen, elite, trained, hand-picked men out of all Israel. The 3,000 elite. And they went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. That's a very biblical way to say, go to the bathroom right there, everybody. Uh, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. This is, an, uh, this is an awkward situation right here. Saul is relieving himself and we're having a conversation. He doesn't know how big the bathroom is. Uh, these guys are in a few stalls down and they're having a conversation. David, this is your chance. You should go and get him right now. Here is the day. Look at it. Verse 4. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. I want you to, I want you to think about this. I want you to try to get into the setting of being in the cave. You're fleeing for your life, and you're hiding and Saul's chasing you, and then here's the big moment. You've now got Saul. He's now vulnerable. You could now come and get him, and yet you can't. Look what happens. Look at verse 4. Look at, look at how David feels in his heart. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterwards David's heart struck him because he had even cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid, hey guys, stop it. I'm not going to go get Saul right now. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, referring to Saul, the king, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. The guys are telling David, go kill Saul. Here's your chance to get your enemy. David goes and just cuts off a piece of his robe, which could be a reference to, to a, a previous notice when, when Samuel had the piece of the robe there and Saul lost the kingdom when he had that exchange with Samuel. And then David even feels bad about cutting off a piece of his robe because this is God's king and who am I to touch him? So he's in the cave, there's his enemy, and he still feels like there's literally nothing he can do to stop Saul from chasing after him to kill him. Have you ever felt like there is nothing you could do? Like you're just stuck in a situation? 
That's what it means to be in the cave. We're going to make an acrostic. It's there on your notes, C-A-V-E. You might want to put it down uh, vertically if you're taking notes on not our handout, but we've got it there. Uh, Let's think through what it's like to be in a cave where you can't do anything about your circumstances. Let's start with that, circumstances, okay? you got circumstances outside of your control. David did absolutely nothing to get Saul. He did nothing wrong to get Saul going after him. What he did is he won the hearts of the people, and he brought glory to God when he killed Goliath, and he won many victories in battle. What he did was what he was supposed to do, and yet Saul now wants to kill him. Circumstance. Anybody living in a circumstance right now that feels a little bit of outside of your control? Anybody living in a circumstance like that? Take a look around. If you don't think you are, you're in the parking lot on a brutally hot day. You're, you're outside of your control. We got, we got told, for the first time in, in my life, we got told to stay at home on March 19th, 2020. We got retold to stay at home this 4th of July weekend. And that's really bothering some people in our church. Some people in our church, we're just, and I felt this way at first when we had to close the doors of our church building. It, you just grate against it. You're just so frustrated. This is not right. This is not the way life should be. You just feel like things are wrong in your circumstances. We got some people in our church really struggling with the circumstance that we're in right now because we're in the cave. And there's nothing we could do about it. If it was right there in front of us, we can't even do anything about it. It's outside of our control. Put this down for the A of cave. It's anti-activity. Anti-activity. There's like nothing. There's things I want to do, but I can't do. I've talked to some brothers during this time who are really frustrated because one of the things that they really find a lot of identity and value in is serving here at the church. And it's, there's so limited opportunities to serve because so much of our interaction is now uh, we can't meet in the building, which is where a lot of our service took place. I'm not talking about these kind of services. I'm talking about people showing up to serve one another, to do works of service, to minister to other people. So many people who are missing doing kids' ministry. So many people missing doing greeting and cleaning and setting up and tearing down and donuts and coffee and all the things that we used to do to serve. We can't do those things. Well, I know some people are really frustrated that we can't evangelize right now. You know, usually we've got, we had a parade yesterday. Anybody check out the parade we did yesterday? That was fun. Who was in the parade? Give them a round of applause. They were in a parade. They're, they're important. That's awesome. That was a lot of fun. But what we usually do is we're down Main Street with tens of thousands of people seeing our church, and people always come to church. We go out and we evangelize. We usually take a whole week and go evangelize. We've done special services around the 4th of July before where people in our church have gotten saved and all of that activity that we love to do to serve the people of God, to evangelize lost people. It's all right now being contained and it's just frustrating some of us. It's driving us crazy. It feels like we're in a cave. Let's talk about being vilified for V. Let's talk about being vilified. Let's talk about being talked about like you're a bad guy when you're actually not a bad guy. Let's talk about people speaking evil of you. 
And, and now that we've got the context of being in a cave where Saul's coming to kill you with 3,000 men, and even if Saul is going, is going to the bathroom right there, you can't even touch him because he's God's king, and it's not your vengeance to take. And so if you go back to Psalm 57, you can see that David might be hiding in a cave, but his soul is taking refuge in God, and he cries out. I don't know if you've ever been in such a tough spot where you just, the one thing that comes to your mind is have mercy on me, God, have mercy. That's how he starts this. When you're crying out for mercy two times like this to begin the psalm, you're in a low spot, but he's saying, hey, I'm not just hiding in a cave. You see, this is what David did so well. He took his physical circumstance and he used it to make him think about God. I'm not hiding in a cave. I'm hiding under your wings. I'm hiding under your shelter. Uh, this cave isn't going to protect me. You're going to protect me. I cry out. This is going to help all of you who are so frustrated right now by the lack of activity and what we're able to do as a church or as Christians. Look at verse 2. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. It's not about what I'm going to do for God. It's about what God's going to use me to do for him. Hallelujah. Don't make it about what you can't do. God is outside of your circumstance. God is completely in control of planet Earth right now. He's upholding it by the word of his power. God is in no way underneath the coronavirus. Stop thinking that he is. Now, see, David has a great perspective there. God is most high. He's above it all, and he's got a purpose for me. And let me tell you, that the coronavirus is not slowing down God's purpose for anybody in this parking lot or anybody on this live stream right now. This is not even out of the plan. This is according to schedule. That's how God views it. It's completely different than the way you and I see things. But then look at, uh, look at the confidence in verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Like, hey, there's nothing I can do about it on earth. I'll go to the place that can do something about it. I'll start talking to heaven. When you feel like there's a problem that can't be solved on earth, it's a heavenly problem. And that's the time that you need to start praying. Prayer is the number one thing that all of us can do. In fact, we could do more of it now maybe than ever before. You want to do something? It's time to become a prayer warrior if you're not already. It's time to get down on your knees. It's time to start writing out prayers. It's time to spend more deep, intimate time in the presence of God than maybe you ever have in your entire life. Not just to pray through a list of things, but to really pray till it's all out. Everything on the inside is given to the Lord. He says, God's coming from heaven to save me. He's going to send from heaven. And then, after a moment of pause there, that's what Selah means there, it's kind of a moment of pause, and he says it again, God will send out, and this is who God is. You should write down next to verse 3 there, steadfast love and faithfulness. Whenever you see steadfast love and faithfulness together like that in the Psalms, that's a reference to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. That's a reference to when God introduces himself and he shows his glory to Moses. You know what David's saying here is, I'm going to see the glory of God. God's going to send him his very self. His very presence, the glory of who he is, that's who's going to show up and save me in this cave. Now, he had real problems, and this is where we get back to vilified here with the V. Look at verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. 
So we know that David has fought lions before protecting the sheep. And now he's comparing his enemies to being surrounded by a pit of lions. And remember, this is before Daniel and the lion's den. This is how David's thinking. And he's saying that it's men who are the lions, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. So that men are the lions, and their teeth are actually their words that are cutting at David. Now, I'm not 100% sure who he's talking about. Is he talking about what Saul and the 3,000 chosen soldiers are saying about him, like his enemies mocking him? Or is he talking about what the 400 bitter guys are saying around him hiding in the cave of Adullam? They might not be saying good things. They might, you might have some, some people, you might be uh, ready to go to war, and they're over here complaining, they're over here grumbling, they're over here focused on themselves, just yapping, yapping, yapping. He might be talking about those guys. Here's everybody, no, I, nobody's saying something good about me. I got people saying all kinds of bad things, and their words are cutting. They're like spears and arrows. He, he's had spears thrown at him before, but no, it's the words that hurt. David is God's man after his own heart. He is a man who has brought glory to God over all the earth through killing Goliath, and he is now the bad guy of Israel, the most wanted. He's been vilified when he's righteous, and he's waiting for God to vindicate him, and when he has a chance to take his own vengeance, when he has a chance to settle it with Saul, he does not, and he gives it up to God. That's amazing there how he does that. Look what he says in verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So E is for these enemies that are all around him. E is for the enemies. He's got enemies maybe in his own camp. He's got enemies all around him. And, and I'm just trying to think, like, when we have been so restricted in our activity. And when it feels like there's so much tension and animosity in our nation and in our culture, is, your, is the chorus of your song right now, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth? Do you see how David's situation and David's mindset are in two completely different places? Everybody needs to see this. You need God to open your eyes to see this, that this guy is in a worse spot than we are, and yet he is more ready, maybe, to give God the glory than we are. His mindset is not in any way determined by his circumstances or his enemies. His mindset is all about God's name being hallowed and get the glory. Hallelujah. Can you say that's the way you've been thinking during this trial? During this time of limited activity, during this time of people being vilified constantly, people saying bad things about one another, and an endless spewing of hate that is America right now. And it's only going to get worse as we move towards the election, the division, the, the, the vilification of other people. Are you saying, hey, my, my primary theme song, my chorus, my jam, still the same. To God be the glory. That's what I'm for. That's what my life's all about. I don't really care what happens to me if I die in a cave 
What, what, I mean, he doesn't think he is. He knows God's going to save him because he has the promise of being king. He's hanging on to the promises of God. But his, but his passion is for God to be exalted. Some of us need to get our mindset out of the cave. We need to stop looking at what's going on around us. And we need to get our mindset beyond above the heavens, like beyond what we can see here today. Beyond even the sphere of our planet. We're not even talking about outer space. We're talking beyond space. We're talking about beyond time. There is something that will echo for eternity. There is something beyond what the eyeballs and the, and the microscopes and the lenses can possibly see. There is eternal glory of God in a spiritual realm. Have your eyes been open? Can you see the glory of God? That's what your heart should be beating for. That's what you should be praying for. Point number one, let's get it down like this, everybody. You need to look for the light of his glory at the end of your tunnel. You need to look for the light of his glory at the end of your tunnel. That's what David's able to do. He's able to be in a cave, and he's able to focus on that one little ray of light coming through. That one little hope that he has in the glory of God, and then that one little glimpse of light. At every tunnel, there's always that light way down there at the end of it, and that one little glimpse of light, that one little hope of the glory of God becomes the entire view of David, becomes everything that he sees. It's the chorus. He says it again in verse 11. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I would be so tempted... If I was writing a song, if I was in David's situation to make it all about me and what I'm going through, I don't know if it would be a worship song. might be more like a country western song, if you know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> and he's doing straight worship from the cave. Is that what you've been doing? You've been, maybe you've been throwing out vilifying words and grumbling and complaining about your situation. Maybe you've been just irked and bothered within you because you can't do anything. Here's the amazing thing we got to see about David in this psalm. David believes that the battle belongs to the Lord, whether he's called to fight or whether he's called to sit in the cave. His theme song doesn't change based on his circumstance. If he gets to slay a giant for the glory of God or he gets to hide out, and watch Saul go to the bathroom for the glory of God. He, he's, hey, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Think about that. He is genuinely in it for God and not himself. Has that, been, has that been the way you and I have responded? I wonder how not coronavirus is affecting me, not the political climate is affecting me, I wonder how God's name is going to be more known through all of this. I wonder how more people are going to come to see the glory of God through all of this. I wonder how God will be magnified and exalted. Now go with me to Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8. Here's what David understood in a way that we need to understand here today. And I'm really concerned for some of my brothers and sisters at the church because I can tell that our current circumstances are affecting them. They are not acting the same way as I knew them to be before coronavirus. They have now become maybe some of these guys who are coming to David. They've become a little bit embittered, a little bit 
bother. And you got to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, and we got to remind ourselves of this thing that David is singing about, the steadfast love of God. In Hebrew, it's the hesed. It's a covenant promise of love. Steadfast love. Like nothing about circumstances changing changes the love of God. We've got to all see that. God's love is steadfast. Circumstances, we will always be riding a roller coaster of emotions if we're riding the roller coaster of circumstance. Everybody here is going to experience highs and experience lows, but the steadfast love of the Lord will never fail you. It will never change. It will never fade. It cannot increase because it's already at the maximum. God loves you to the maximum. And his love is steadfast for you. Look at what it says here in Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I think when Paul writes this, he might be throwing out a personal list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or coronavirus or looting or elections? Does that have anything to do with how much God loves you? Let me hear, let me hear you. No, it does not. Here we are so bothered when we are so blessed. Here we are so upset when we are so loved. Nothing that is happening right now has changed the love of God for you at all. If anything, it's allowed you to see it more clearly. And and it's not easy. We've been talking about suffering from 1 Peter we got plenty of people suffering. I'm not saying that the steadfast love of the Lord is always going to feel good. No, it says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Don't make no mistake, we're going through it. We're in the cave. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, I've been studying the Bible My whole life listening to sermons, Romans 8 is one of the most famous passages of encouragement, this great line, more than conquerors. I still don't know what that means. I mean, if you're a conqueror, I'm thinking, hey, you're cool. You know what I mean? Conqueror, that sounds like pretty much at the top. More than conqueror? That's you. That's how much you're loved. That's how much you can overcome your circumstances. That's how much God sets a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Even if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid of anything because you are 100% loved and there is nothing. You might feel separated. You might feel isolated. Let me just tell you right now, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in his son, Jesus Christ. His steadfast love will never fail you. You will never have any distance between you and the love of God. You are more than a conqueror in any situation. Maybe we should start thinking like that. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life. I mean, look at how big picture he's talking about here. He's talking about death, angels, rulers. He's talking about angels and demons, the spiritual realm, nor things present, nor things to come. He's talking about time now, nor powers, nor height, nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you in the cave? Guess what? You are loved in the cave. God is right there with you. See, David understood this. 
And he was not thinking about himself when he is fleeing for his life. He is writing a song that we are going to sing at the end of this service. Ryan Pierce took some of these lines, made it into a worship song. He wants to see everybody in the earth. He wants everybody on the planet to know God's glory. That's what he's thinking about. In a cave with so many problems, he can't even count them. And he's thinking, how does everybody get to know the glory of God? That's why he's a man after God's own heart. Now go back to Psalm 57, because by the, by the second half of this psalm, you wouldn't even know he's having a hard time. You wouldn't even know after that Selah there where he talks about them setting a net for my steps, them digging a pit, but they're going to fall into their own pit. Now he, look at verse 7. Now he's like revived. Now he's energized. Now he's not even low in his feelings anymore. Now he's just coming on strong. Now he's saying, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Interesting word choice. Why would he say that his heart is steadfast, constant, unchanging, reliable? Why would he say that? What has he perhaps been thinking about the steadfast love of God that then makes him feel like He can be steadfast. If God's going to keep loving me, then I can keep going for Him. If the steadfast love of the Lord is new every morning and His faithfulness is always with us, then we can be steadfast. Now look what he's... Now he's like, okay, let's get the band together. I'm going to sing. I'm going to make melody. Awake my glory, he says. My whole being, my soul. i got to get myself going. i got to get my harp, my lyre. I will awake the dawn. Have you ever awoken the dawn before? That's called doing an all-nighter, everybody. Now I'm steadfast. Now I'm pumped up. I might be in a dark night of the soul. I might be in the cave. And I'm just going to keep going through this night. Because morning is coming and I'm going to see the light shine. I'm going to see the sun revealed. I'm going to see the glory of God. Where's that harp at? We need to get worshiping. That's what he's saying. By thinking about God, you have to learn this in your life. If you don't learn this, it's going to be a long and tough life. By thinking about God, it has to change something about you. Change the way you're feeling. Change your mood. Change your attitude. Don't let your circumstances determine your day. Let your relationship with God determine your day. Let his love make an impact on you. By thinking about God, David is now in a different place than the cave. No, he's still in the cave physically, but in his soul, spiritually, he is in a place of worship and glory. Look at how he says it. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. God's going to get me through this. I'm going to be there worshiping with the people. I will sing praises to you among the nations. We're not even going to be here in a holy huddle in Israel worshiping God. Everybody's going to know about our worship of God. For your steadfast love. This, see, his steadfastness through his trial comes from his understanding of the steadfast love of God. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. So here it is. Hit it, guys. Bring in the full band. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Nothing has changed. He's still in the cave. And he's worshiping. In fact, if you read Samuel with us this week, you're going to see that this whole process has to play out, even though he spared Saul's life. And Saul says, wow, you're a better guy than I am, basically. And and Saul goes back. 
Saul keeps end up coming after him, keeps trying to kill him. He does the whole thing where he spares Saul's life all over again, and still Saul is trying to kill him. He is still in the same circumstance. But his heart is ready to see the glory of God. Look at Psalm 63. Here's another psalm written in that same context. We're not... We're not sure exactly where the cave was. This is a broad area here, Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That's what I was describing to you. It's a bleak landscape out there. I mean, it's just desolate. It looks like it needs some water. I I personally believe when Jesus comes back, you're going to see streams in the desert and this totally desolate area known for the Dead Sea. Jesus is going to do something out there. That's my personal thought. But at the time David writes this, it's a, it's a bleak, dry, look at how he describes it here. God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There's David again taking his physical circumstance and turning the thoughts to a spiritual reality. While he's got nothing to drink, he's probably going through the wilderness, looking towards Angeti, looking towards that oasis. Well, here he is feeling like he's far away from God, like he's dried up. And yet, what is he going to do? He's going to seek after God, like he's the only source of water, the only source of life. Look at these words here. Verse 2, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. I've spent some quality time in your presence, beholding your power and glory. David knows who God is. Here's a verse you might need right now. Verse 63, verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. How good is the steadfast love of the Lord? Better than everything else in life. Better than everything else put together. Nothing else our heart should be seeking but the love of God, is what he said. And because of that, underline that phrase there, I will lift up my hands. Okay. Now, we like to lift up our hands sometimes when we sing songs, and it's so great to be singing together outside like this. But when you read in the uh, Psalms, I will lift up my hands, that means prayer. That was, the, that was the posture of prayer. Lifting up hands means I'm going to pray, is what he's saying. I'm out here in a dry and weary land, not just physically, but he's feeling, fo- he's feeling not very intimate or close with God in his soul. And he's like, so I'm, but your love is there. I have confidence in your love. So I'm going to start praying to you. I'm going to start blessing you. I'm going to start coming to you because I know you haven't moved. And I'm going to seek you until I find you. Earnestly, I'm going to seek you. Early in the morning, I'm going to seek you. I'm going to move myself towards God. I'm not waiting for him to come to me. He's there. His steadfast love, it's better than life. I got to go to him. That's how David addresses himself. So get my hands up and let's start praying. And I'm going to keep praying till I'm in the secret place, till I'm in the presence of the Lord. Do you do that when you're having a rough day? Do you call so-and-so? When you're having a rough day, do you watch television? Do you eat food? What do you do to get you through a rough day? You should pray until you get to the presence of God. That's how you should deal with a rough day. The reason we have so many Christians having a hard time these days is because they don't really know how to pray it out, how to pour it out, how to keep going till it's gone in the presence of God in prayer. Does anybody know that kind of prayer that I'm talking about? Where you pour out your heart to the Lord and you know that he hears you and there's a real interaction that takes place between you and God when you pray. That's what David's going to do. 
That's what he means when he says, I will lift up my hands. I am going to pray. And really, that's what Psalm 57 is. It's the fundamental prayer. When you say, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, when you say, let your glory be over all the earth, what you're saying is, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the number one thing we're supposed to pray for, is for God to get the glory. You can write that down, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. We are commanded by Jesus. Also in Luke 11, we are commanded by Jesus. And the first thing Jesus, when he teaches the disciples to pray, it's to pray for God's name. It's to pray Psalm 57, 5 and 11. Pray that God will get the glory. Pray that his name will be known. See, this is why a lot of us lack a passion to pray or we lack experience of power in our prayer. We don't see our prayer changing things. We don't see God answering our prayer because most of our prayer is about us and our circumstances and our enemies and it's not about God and His glory. We're supposed to pray for God and His glory. Yes, we can lift up our, our needs, our daily needs. Forgive us. Lead us not into temptation. Yes, bring all your needs before God. But before we get to our own needs, it teaches us to pray for God's requests. You know, there's that moment at the end of the Zoom group or the fellowship group, at the end of the gathering with the other believers, and it's like, hey, does anybody have any prayer requests? And we start asking each other, what can I pray for you for? What can I pray for you for? You know the first person's prayer request that should matter to you? What does God want me to pray for? That's who I'm talking to in the conversation. How many of us are giving God all of our requests, all of our loved ones' requests, and we're going through zero of his requests? His requests are supposed to come first. They may not always come first in order, but first in importance. That's what, that's what we, we got to learn how to pray. Get this down for point number two. Learn how to pray for God's name, not your own. Learn how to pray for God's name, not your own. If you're not into prayer, if prayer's not exciting to you, it's because you're not praying for the glory of God. There is nothing more exciting than the glory of God. I mean, that's the church being built, that's souls being saved, that's the name of Jesus being lifted high. There is nothing more exciting than see God manifest himself and make himself known and have more people look to him and sing to him and worship him. The glory of God is the most exciting thing going on planet Earth, and it needs to be over all the earth. And if you're praying for something less, you're not going to be that inspired to pray. If you're not praying for the glory of God. Now go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want you to see the most important chapter in the life of David in 2 Samuel 7. See, what people talk about with David is they talk about Goliath and they talk about Bathsheba. And neither one of those is the most important thing that happens in the life of David. I want to suggest to you 2 Samuel 7 that we're going to eventually get to in our reading. This is what you should be looking forward to. This is the most important chapter between, uh, in, in the life of David. And it's not about David and some other person, a giant or a woman or his friendship with Jonathan or his animosity that Saul has for him. The most important relationship that David has is with God. Look at 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. When the king lived in his house. This is actually after he makes Jerusalem. He takes Jerusalem in Zion for the glory of God. He makes Jerusalem kind of where he, where he is. We're going to read about that. It's awesome. This is the highlight of David's life, I would say, beyond Goliath. And when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. See, now we're not in the cave anymore. Now we're in the castle. 
We've gotten out of the cave. We've been lifted up. We've been lifted. We're literally now, we live in a house that's made for a king that's on, in a city on a hill. Like we're literally living now in the highest spot. We went from the lowest of lows in the caves, and now we're at the highest spot. We're the king. We're in the castle. We've got rest from all of our enemies. I mean, this is the victory that God promised him, the kingship that God anointed him. He's now experiencing it. Good times, happy days. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David's now blessed. He's got everything he needs. And guess what he's bothered about? How come I've got a better house than God does? That's the kind of heart you and I need to have. That's the kind of heart where we're more concerned with God's glory than our own personal well-being. He's now in a great spot. And guess what? Theme song didn't change. In the castle or in the cave, he's still thinking, how do we get his glory over all the earth? How do we get his name exalted higher? Hey, we, if, I, if people are thinking my house is cool, that's not it. We got to get God's house to be the place. He has the idea right here to build the temple, which Solomon will end up building, which will be an amazing thing. The building of the temple, the dedication of the temple, God's presence there with his people. That's what David's thinking about on his day off. Everybody gives David a hard time for what he thinks about a few chapters later. They often overlook this, what he's thinking about right here. That God's glory means more than his own name. And you can read through the whole rest of that chapter. And you've got to go down to verse 25 with me, though. Well, look at verse 25 here, everybody. Stick with me. Are you guys still with me? Who's still with me? You still going strong? The guy with the lap desk is still with me. That's awesome. God bless you, Sky. Every, he seriously brought a lap desk. That's how you earn eternal reward. Look at 2 Samuel 7, 25. Right here it says, and now. This is David's response. So what happens in this chapter, and we'll get into it in our reading. Uh, I mean, God makes a covenant with David. And this covenant has affected all of us because he literally says that the kingly line of David will never end. And ultimately, who is the one who comes in the kingly line of David? His name is Jesus. And so God makes a promise to David about his son that he fulfills with his son. It's an amazing covenant that he makes with David. David just says, I want to get God a better house. And God says to David, I'm going to establish your house forever, David. The, the, I mean, God's son is going to come in the line of David. That's the covenant that's made here. But then here's how David responds. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. Do as you have spoken. There's a great prayer line right there. Do as you have spoken. And, and here's the goal. Verse 26. Your name will be magnified forever saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. 
So what is his prayer? His prayer is that God will keep the promise to establish his house, and that will magnify God's name forever. And how does he have the boldness, the confidence to pray this prayer, the courage to pray it? Because God's already said it. He, the, the basic idea of his prayer here is, do as you have spoken. You've got a couple of dashes under point number two. If we're going to learn how to pray for God's requests, God's glory, God's name, your first dash there, ask him to do what he said. Ask him to do what he said. Every single one of us, if we're pouring it out and we're praying in the secret place and we're not going to go till we're right with God, something every single one of us should be saying in our prayers is do what you said. Do as you have spoken. The whole reason I'm asking you to do this, God, is you already told me you were going to do it. And I'm just asking you to do what you already said you're going to do because I know you're true to your word, you're faithful to your promises, and so I'm praying to you with faith and confidence that you're going to answer this prayer because you already told me you're going to do it. See, sometimes we're out here praying for things. I don't know if it's your will, God. We got a whole book that we know is the will of God. We should be praying for the things we know for sure God wants. That's a kind of confidence, a boldness, where you can come right up to your Father, and even though he's in heaven, you can boldly say here on earth, God, do this because you said so. Do this as you promised. See how he says, the whole reason I have courage to say this to you, God, is because you already said it to me. That's going to give you power in your prayer. When you pray from the scripture, when you pray God's promises back to him. Now, go with me to John 14. Let's, let's learn about prayer from Jesus here in John chapter 14. Start with me here in verse 12, okay? Now, and let's get into prayer. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? How does Jesus teach us to pray to the Father? Are you praying right? There's a chance you could be praying the wrong way. Let's make sure that we're praying the way Jesus taught us to pray. This is John 14, verses 12 to 14, and it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works then these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Okay, so Jesus said that the people in this parking lot, the disciples, those who follow after him, look, whoever believes in me, let me ask, quick question, everybody, who here believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God? You with me on that? Okay, well, that what Jesus just said to you is you're going to do greater works than him. You with me on that one? that's what he said okay now that's hard for us to fathom because when jesus was here he's doing miracles healings walking on water feeding thousands raising the dead how could we do greater works than jesus because jesus is now at the right hand of the father interceding for you with all of his power with all of his compassion everything we learned about jesus here on planet earth he now has unlimited capacity to act on that in the presence of God at his right hand, and all he's waiting for you to do is ask him. You think, well, if Jesus was beside me, I'd feel pretty strong. I'd feel like we could do some good things. Let me just tell you, Jesus is beside you right now. He's at the right hand of the Most High. He's in the place of absolute authority, and he's there to intercede for you. You have Jesus beside you every time you pray. And he's saying, hey, not that many people really got saved when Jesus was on planet earth, not compared to how many are going to get saved. 
Not that much of the church was really built. Remember, it was 120 people in an upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. No, Jesus says, my people who believe in me, they're going to do greater works. And what does he go right into? Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. When you ask it in my name, and it's about God's glory, then I'm going to do it. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We were so inspired by that verse, we put it up on the wall in our fellowship hall. Since you haven't been there for a while, let me remind you about it right here. If you ask Jesus anything in his name, he does not say the answer will be no. He does not say the answer will be maybe. He says, ask it in my name and I'll do it. That's what he says. If you don't think Jesus knows how prayer works, Maybe you should start praying to him about it, and he could teach you. That's how he says prayer works. So let's get that down for our second dash. Ask him because of his son. Ask him because of his son. When you come to the Father, come to him in the name of Jesus. Don't come in your name. Come in the name of his son. The only reason that you can go into the presence of our holy God in heaven that you can't come before the throne of grace is because Jesus was the sacrifice to pay for all of your sins so you could experience atonement, being right with God, so you could dare to go into his presence and ask him anything. But it's saying when you ask, ask it in the name of Jesus. Don't say, God, we need your help down here. Don't say, God, my, my friend really needs you. No, come to him and say, this is what your son died for. This is what your son promised. This is what Jesus said he would do. And so I'm asking you, because I know you love your son, because I know your son perfectly obeyed you. This isn't about me. This is about you and your son getting the glory, and I'm just here to ask you to do it. That's how we're supposed to pray. It's not something we tack on at the end of our prayers in Jesus' name. It's the authority that we come to. It's the authority. It's the, it's the power that we have to pray at all. There's this guy named R.A. Torrey. He used to really pray. He wrote this book called The Power of Prayer that we have in our book nook. Some of us here at the church have read this book, and he talks about signing a name at the bottom of a check. He talks about a million-dollar, big amount, a check. See, if, if I put a million-dollar check and I put the name Bobby Blakey on it, and I gave you that check, that check ain't going to do you much good, my friend. But see, if the check is signed with the blood of the spotless lamb, that check is unlimited. That's what we're coming to God with. You're not coming to God in your name. You're coming to God in the name of his son. You're appealing to the Father's love for the Son, to the Son's perfect obedience to the Father. Go over to chapter 16. Look what it says in chapter 16, verse 22. Jesus doubles down on this idea about prayer that is supposed to unlock a power in our praying because we're praying for God's name to be exalted and we're doing it through the name of His Son. It's about God, not about us. And so he says, you're going to have sorrow now. You're going to be in a cave now. You're going to be burdened now. But I will see you again. This is John 16, 22. I will see you again. Here's Jesus promising you. Your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. In that day, the day that we get to be with Jesus, 
The day that Jesus comes to get us, when, when the church is really assembled in the presence of our Lord, in that day you will ask nothing of me. We won't need to pray for Jesus to do things because it will be happening right in front of our eyes. But truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He's saying there's a new power unleashed on planet Earth. In the power of my name, praying in my name, coming to the Father on my behalf for the things that I represent, that's going to unleash a kind of joy that you've never experienced. That's going to unleash greater works than Jesus did. We're going through coronavirus. We're meeting in the parking lot. We're all sweating at the end of the sermon. i got to ask you a question. Is the theme of your song right now, Be Exalted, O God, Above the Heavens? Let your glory be over all the earth. We're going to sing it here in a minute, but just get honest. Is that what you've been singing when you're driving in your car? Is that what you've been singing at your house, isolated there to stay at home? This is the theme of our song. We see it in David's example in Psalm 57. Here we see Jesus teaching us how to pray in his name for the glory of the Father. Look at John 17. We'll just end with this. Look at Here's the prayer of Jesus. If you want to learn how to pray, John 17 is Jesus praying to the Father. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That's it right there. It's all about the glory of God. That's what David knew in the cave. That's what we need to know in this time of coronavirus. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond in a prayer of song together. And we're going to sing Psalm 57. So everybody, please pray with me right now. Father in heaven, we needed to hear this this psalm. We needed this example of a man fleeing for his life in a cave. And yet he's all about your glory over all the earth. He can't see the heavens, but he wants to see your glory above them. He's not even outside looking around. He's hiding in the dark. But he's thinking about how could, how could your name be known? How could all the earth know that there is a God in Israel? How could more people join the worship and the praise and the faith? God, I pray that you will stir us up. I, I just pray for some of my brothers and sisters who are going through such a hard time. Such a burden. It seems like this trial is just not going to end. It just keeps going and going and going. God, will you open their eyes so they could see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's your glory and let that be all they would see right now? God, I know we got some people having a real hard time. Maybe they wouldn't even want to come to this service. They're having such a hard time, so they're watching it on the live stream. Maybe they're watching this video later because somebody had to tell them to watch it because they're having such a hard time. God, will you speak to them right now? Will you open their eyes to see that the reason they're having a hard time is they're looking under the sun when your glory is over the earth. They're looking at circumstances when your name is exalted above the heavens and we could be praying for it. We could be a part of it. We could see it if you would just open our eyes, Father. We ask you today to show us your glory that you might be exalted in our lives. God, we ask that you would use coronavirus so that your name would be known that you would use the political tension in our culture to exalt the name of Jesus and to lift it high. 
God, we pray for your requests more than our own. God, please teach us to pray at this church. Let us be people who who go to heaven when we can't solve the problems here on earth. Make us people like David. People who are so sure of your steadfast love that our hearts became steadfast. So sure that your love was better than life that we lift up our hands to you in prayer. So we pray here today. We pray at every one of us. We pray it all together. We pray it straight from our hearts to yours. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth.